Chapter 9 The Island of the Voices And now the winds, which had so long been from the northwest, began to blow from the west itself. And every morning, when the sun rose out of the sea, the curved prow of the dawn treader stood up right across the middle of the sun. Some thought that the sun looked larger than it looked from Narnia, but others disagreed. And they sailed and sailed before a gentle yet steady breeze, and saw neither fish nor goal nor ship nor shore. And stores began to get low again, and it crept into their hearts that perhaps they might have come to a sea which went on forever. But when the very last day on which they thought they could risk continuing their eastward voyage dawned, it revealed right ahead between them and the sunrise, a low land lying like a cloud. Welcome to For Narnia and For Aslan. I'm Katie and this is Bathy, and together we're exploring the voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. And in chapter nine, on a quiet island that looks like a cultivated English estate, our voyagers find themselves cut off from their ship by a party of invisible inhabitants. Some time ago, having been uglified by the magician, these inhabitants had used the magician's book to turn themselves invisible, and now they want Lucy to turn them back. She agrees. Wow, you're so generous to just call them inhabitants without going further. What would you have called them? I don't know. Um, bumbling, dim-witted creatures? <laughs> Invisible ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> True. There's something to listen to as they talk. How would you describe, Bethy, their style of conversation? Well, how I've heard people talk about it is either you love them or you hate them. Hmm. And I kind of love it. I think it's fun and funny, and I would hate it if it was the whole book, but I like that it's just this random middle couple of chapters. Mm -hmm. The way that they speak is just constant agreement with each other. Yes, and especially with their chief. Yes. In fact, the way that we just spoke was similar, but it would have been like, <laughs> it would have been like, yes, of course, Katie, exactly what you said. I couldn't have said it any better myself. I say it five times. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think Lewis does that? Like, what's he trying to get out of this constant agreement? I mean, it's a legitimate question because he spends a lot of time with them on mm -hmm. this. The chief tells the whole story with them constantly agreeing, and it takes up most of the chapter, I'd say. Mm -hmm. They seem to really think highly of their chief and everything he says mm -hmm. and anything that each other says. But how Lucy describes them is that they're not very brave, obviously. And Eustace says they're clearly not very clever either. Mm. And it's kind of funny to me that people who can be constantly agreeing with each other can also not be clever. I think what Lewis was trying to point out is that great minds don't always think alike. Mm. That constantly saying, yes, yes, of course you're right, of course you're right, and then having another person say the same exact thing to you gets you nowhere in a conversation. You end up going in circles. You have an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. We really ought to have conversation that pushes each other to think differently, to try out new ideas. And their lack of critical thinking is enough that we'll even get some of our voyagers disagreeing with each other and these inhabitants agreeing with all of them. Right. I just really feel like Lewis is all about real conversation and in-depth discussion. And the only way to have that is to be willing to try on new ideas, to be willing to say to another person, I don't think you're right. 
mm-hmm. to push each other toward newer, greater thinking. Because their their level of thinking is pretty boiled down simple. Like they all together agreed they were ugly and they all together agreed let's turn invisible. And now all of them together think let's turn uninvisible. But it's kind of like a one idea in society at a time. Like this is the source of our problems. This is our solution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, can only take you like they've come three steps together. Which is fun to read for a little while, but it would make progress extremely slow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun to watch how Lewis chose to write it. Like it starts out with just showing us their conversation. Like we hear the dialogue and then we start getting some characters reflecting on it and the narrator reflecting on it. Like instead of showing the dialogue, he'll just say with many murmurs of acclamation or whatever thing. (laughs) It's fun. And then within all of this, of course, they're invisible. Our heroes have to believe Lucy that she's been surrounded by these invisible people and that likely all of them now are too, that they have to fight them. And they all do a beautiful job of believing her. I mean, they do have some doubt. How could you not? Mm -hmm. But they take her seriously. And Katie, I'm curious, what metaphors did you notice developing around the concept of invisibility? So it's kind of interesting the way that we encounter invisibility in this chapter. At first, it's Lucy who's stopped by the side of the road to tie her shoe, and she hears everyone coming, and she listens to their conversation, and then once they're gone, she runs off to tell the others. So she kind of spies on them, and then while she's telling the others, we hear about there's somebody pumping water invisibly, and one of the leaders mentions like Caspian or someone, hush, one of them is there listening to everything we say right now. Don't like make plans in front of them. And invisibility in general, like people ask, what would you do if you were invisible for a day, like at youth group or whatever? Mm-hmm. And it seems like spying is a big theme. Like it's getting to go someplace unobserved and do things without maybe the consequences of doing them visibly. I don't know. I'm yeah. it's curious. And going into the next chapter, Lucy's going to have the chance to spy on someone. And I just wonder if this is already setting up some of the <laughs> pros and cons of that sort of ability. Right. That it's actually not as great as people think that it might be. Mm-hmm. I've never really seen the appeal of it. Invisibility. Oh, it sounds lonely. Right? I mean, invisibility cloak, maybe. Well, like, in that case, it's the ability to turn it on and off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. If it's a matter of life and death, it'd be great to be invisible. But how many times have I had? Well, actually, okay. The times that I've had <laughs> life and death situations, it would actually be really terrible if I were invisible. Ooh, uh-huh. Those are moments that I need help. Yes. And it seems like for the island inhabitants, their goal was kind of to erase themselves. Like they hated their appearance. And so this was the best they could think up or that that they could accomplish. It doesn't say why they've changed their minds, but it says that they're just tired of it and they want to go back. Even though they thought they were ugly, it's better than not seeing each other at all. Not really sure what that means, but it's kind of interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what it makes me think of is in the coming chapter, there's a moment where Lucy is tempted and we see the way that the movie portrays it. Lucy sees what it would be like if she stopped existing. Right. And it's kind of horrifying. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had those times in life where you're like, I wish I just had never been born. I wish none of this had happened. You know, those feelings Mm -hmm. of like, just there's no way this could get better. Mm. And I'm so glad that making those wishes doesn't actually do anything. Right. It's good that we don't all have access to a magician book. (laughs) For real. 
One other kind of interesting thing we haven't touched on yet is how the boys feel obligated to step up and fight for Lucy, but it's obviously useless in this situation. I just was really interested in this line. So so Lucy's saying, I'm going to go do what these invisible people want. I'm going to go say the spell to turn them visible again. And all the, the men are like, no, 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 until she convinces them, like, this is the only way to save myself, too. Reap a cheap who had never been known to be afraid in his life, felt no qualms at all about saying that once he saw that it was the logical thing. But all the boys who had been afraid many times in their lives felt very sheepish and turned red when they had to do that. I just thought that was so interesting. Yeah, it's like they have something to prove and Reap doesn't. Yeah, I guess that's it. To prove to themselves, to each other. It is weird also that there's this moment where Edmund says, I really think Reap is in the right this time. Oh, and yeah. he says this time as yeah, if like Reap is not usually in the right. And that kind of bugged me. <laughs> like, cause have we ever found a time when he wasn't? Maybe in Prince I mean, Caspian. Yeah, I was going to say in Prince Caspian, but ever since he got his tail back, he's pretty much spot on. Like the wisest person on ship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, with the whole Eustace situation, with the dragon, with mm-hmm. the sea serpent. I was surprised by that moment. I mean, I could see how normally it'd be like, you can somewhat take what he says with a grain of salt because it's always going to be the fighting approach. Like in chess, where he forgets to play smart because he's playing like a valiant knight. But this isn't really Yet this is the second time that we see him choosing the nonviolent approach. That's so true. So maybe it's just that they don't actually know this mouse as well as they think they do. And they know that I mean, he's I courageous assume... and valiant, and they only associate that with his fighting side. Yeah. For some reason in my mind, he's quite old. Oh, really? Yeah. To me, he's at least like 40. Not that 40 is quite old, but for a mouse, it would be very old. <laughs> it would old be. Because he's chief mouse, mm. and he's lived long enough that a dryad had sung over him mm. when he was born, and he's ready to go to Aslan's country. And he's so wise, and he's had so many experiences. Mm. Does that sound right to you? Or I don't know how long a Narnian mouse would live. It's a good question. I have no idea. I think you're right in terms of all the character traits, except I wouldn't picture him being in any way frail during this journey. Yeah. But I mean, I could be wrong, too. Well, that's why I chose, you know, probably like a hearty 40. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Still very, very capable. <laughs> I don't know it's very hard to know how long these animals live it is (laughs) our sacred reading practice today is medieval fourfold reading of a text we're going to choose a sentence at random from our chapter and analyze it in four different ways. So, Bethy, would you like to flip through and point to a sentence? Sure. All right, I got, but why do you want me to do this? Asked Lucy. Ooh, that's a fun one. So our first way of reading this sentence is for the literal meaning. What did this mean in the past at the time that it's describing? Hmm. So they've decided that they would go find these invisible people. Mm -hmm. They ready their swords. Lucy knocks an arrow and they've walked until the invisible people tell them to stop. Mm -hmm. And then the invisible people explain to them that they need Lucy in particular to read from the magician's book and to turn them back into visible people. Mm. And then Lucy asks, why me? And it turns out to be, that only the magician or a little girl can work the magic book. 
and super random they're too scared to send their own girls up there anymore so they've waited all this time for lucy to show up wasn't it awesome that moment when they said and that's why gentlemen if your little girl doesn't come up to scratch it will be our painful duty to cut your throats merely in the way of business as you might say and no offense i hope (laughs) (laughs) sure then take it (laughs) my goodness i mean they do have invisibility as a strong weapon in their situation Mm mm-hmm So our next layer of reading this sentence is the typological reading, which in the Bible means connecting the Old Testament stories to the New Testament or to the story of Jesus. How is this foreshadowing or fulfilling something from the other half of scripture? It connects the past to the present. So our sentence again is, but why do you want me to do this? Asked Lucy. Do we notice any connections here with other parts of the book or the series or scripture? Well, I do think it's important to note that the me in this sentence is italicized. So she's saying, but why do you want me to do this of all people, essentially? Mm. And so with that, I think of biblical stories where one person is singled out to do Mm. a hard thing, whether it's Saul being made king or Moses. Yeah, Moses needing to lead and not wanting to. Elizabeth asks, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Gideon in the wine press, saying he's the littlest Mm -hmm. guy in his whole clan. Mm -hmm. Sarah laughing about having a kid when she's old and barren. And in the Narnia books, we've got characters who feel unprepared for their task. Who's the one? Is it Shasta? Oh, yes, definitely Shasta. He did not feel prepared to do everything that the hermit asked him to do. And again, Prince Caspian, Aslan asks him, do you feel ready to be king? And he says, I'm not sure. Mm. And Aslan says, that's how I know you are ready. Yeah. That is Caspian, right? It is. And the cabbie had a very similar conversation. That's right. Now, Lucy, it's more a clarifying question, like, why the heck (laughs) should it be me instead of anyone else here? Right. (laughs) Do you not have little girls? Right. (laughs) In some ways, it's got a little accusation behind it. I mean, once she finds out the answer, why don't you do it yourself? Mm -hmm. In that case, there's a connection to Jesus when somebody comes and says, make my brother split up our inheritance to me too. And Jesus says, who made me the judge between you? Which Mm. is funny because he's literally the judge of the world. But he says, why do you want me to do it? Like, y'all figure it out. (laughs) So the third layer is the moral or the tropological reading. How then should we act? What do we do in the present based on the word that we've been given in this sentence? (laughs) Kind of a funny one. I'm not really sure. At first brush. What comes to mind for me is where am I asking another person to do something when it very well could be me? Like these people are the ones who are invisible. Why shouldn't they go do it? Mm -hmm. That's true. That could be useful. And on the flip side, why do you want me to do this when you're the one who has the passion and the vision? Like you go for it and I'll support you. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a ministry one. And just, it's good to ask clarifying questions when you're listening to someone's story. I don't understand this part. Can you explain it? That had to happen for this whole thing to make sense. Right. It's different than some of those biblical characters saying, like, not me. I don't trust you enough, God, to, like, make it be okay for me to be the one. Like, she's just, like, seeking clarity, and then she jumps right in when she has to. She's so brave. She is. Valiant. Our last layer of the fourfold reading is anagogical. We're looking for the big-term spiritual meaning, eschatological look at the ultimate version of this sentence. Well, I guess what comes to mind for me is 
the cross and the idea that, I mean, Jesus really didn't have to do that for us, mm. but he did anyway. Mm -hmm. That's a good connection. And in the same way, that could be extended to each person's life. Like, why, why do you want me to be in this role I'm in? I'm not up for it. Or there'd be other people who are better at this or whatever it is. But like, nope, this is the, this is the task you've been given and the life you've been given to live faithfully as Jesus lived his. It also reminds me of the diversity of people that are going to be brought into God's kingdom in its fulfillment of all these different, different stories being woven together, different types of people that God has called each to their own way of faithfulness. Here it's Lucy called to something. Mm -hmm. And you That's can't really see the cool. whole picture until later and then they all fit together. Mm -hmm. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 27, 11 through 14, and it wouldn't surprise me if I've used this on the podcast before because it's one of my favorites. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That last bit, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord, is one of the things I can repeat to myself sometimes. And hmm. this crew was in a very difficult situation. Yeah, it's humorous once we know the whole story, but to picture it from their perspective, it's terrifying. It really is. I mean, Eustace is like, even if we have to fight them, the people on the Dawn Treader are going to think that we're just waving our swords around. Right. Like we could die before our friend's eyes and they won't know to even help us. <sighs> and fighting an invisible person, just like impossible. Which is what they end up realizing is we just have to walk towards it and like, love you all. Hope we make it through. It made me think again of the moment where they're not sure where Eustace is, but there's a dragon that's appeared on the shoreline. Yeah. Yeah. Where they all like have this grim fondness for each other because they know that anything could happen. And now Eustace is with them this time. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And he falls under that category now of someone who they're fond of. Yeah. He's just did a nice job as on this side note of rolling into the planning and conversations. Like he's just one of the characters now. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. As if nothing happened, but it's because everything happened. <laughs> right. Yay. We should go and find that part of the chapter. Caspian says, well, let's get on with it. We must go and face them. Shake hands all round. Arrow on the string, Lucy. Swords out everyone else. And now for it. Perhaps they'll parlay. They have no control over this unless the enemy decides to back down, which in the psalm is, it sounds like somewhat similar, like they're at the mercy of their enemies and of God controlling the situation. I love that within that, they have so much confidence. Mm. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I don't have to die before I see God's goodness again. Yeah, that is amazing. 
It is. I'm not always sure what that means and what they mean by seeing God's goodness, like what would be required for them to feel that that's been satisfied. Mm, Good question. But they know they'll see it because God is good. And we talked about invisibility earlier. There are ways in which God is invisible, the invisible God, but also he's not hiding like the invisible characters in Narnia. I will see the goodness of the Lord. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you see it, it is without a doubt. Mm. This one was one of the scriptures in my grandma's funeral. Hmm. It's how she lived, confident in the goodness of the Lord. I love that. Bethy, where's Aslan in this chapter? (laughs) I was just about to ask you. I really don't know what to say. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it is pretty wonderful that the wind was just right so that they were about to turn back, but they came across this island instead. That's true. The amount of faith that these people have that there's just going to be land is pretty incredible. How the heck would you know? And why is it likely to be like in your path? Yeah, that's the part that's really blowing my mind. (laughs) I was trying to picture it today like, okay, so all of these islands are just in a straight line. Which means I bet that there's a bunch more that are off their path. Right. And we'll just never know about them. Yeah, whether they're volcanic or or like how they sprung up in the middle of the sea. (laughs) Volcanic, dragonic, we'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess also to have chapters where Aslan isn't directing things. Even like like some of our chapters, it's been a clear setup. Like when, when Eustace went off to the dragon's lair, like Aslan was already setting things up for his learning. Mm-hmm. Here, I guess there's some of that going on, but it also feels like, okay, we're just living. We're just seeing the world. And I guess God made it. Yeah. Back to the invisible God thing. Yeah. Like I'm sure Aslan's present. Mm. I remain confident of that. <laughs> <laughs> And sneak peek to next chapter, we will see Aslan's more involved than we thought on this island. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Compared to some of the other islands, it feels harder to see here. Maybe it's because it looks so much like modern England instead of like an adventurous <laughs> island. That really could be it. <laughs> like, also, it's the trees just harder in a to see things line. in general here. Things are invisible. <laughs> True. <laughs> so I guess we're going to have to wait and take heart <laughs> for the goodness of the Lord to show up in the land of the invisible inhabitants. <laughs> I'll read us out loud cheers broke from the invisible people when their decision was announced and the chief voice warmly supported by all the others invited the Narnians to come to supper and spend the night Eustace didn't want to accept but Lucy said I'm sure they're not treacherous they're not like that at all and the others agreed And so, accompanied by an enormous noise of thumpings, which became louder when they reached the flagged and echoing courtyard, they all went back to the house. Please, Bethy, before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please, and do, do make it soon. We'll be back next week with Chapter 10 of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay, looking good. Check, check. Chapter nine, right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You know that song, but you probably don't, and it's 
Never Shout Never, early stuff. Oh. Um, very, very punk. And he's like, check, check, one, two. All right, here goes nothing. <laughs> and the song is called Here Goes Nothing, and it's so good. Aw, <laughs> fun. He's I definitely like, don't know it, but. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have it. <laughs> it's one of those that, like, brings back ninth grade. Just uh-huh. really whiny, like, timing's everything. Stop telling me you're taking your time. I know you're anxious, but you're running your mouth like you're five years old again. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> like the classic, uh-huh, uh-huh. just early 2000s. Even whiny, just white from your rendition, I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it. And the pacing, like that that rhythm. Yes. Yeah, just so quick. Yeah. Like, I have so much to say, and I have so many feelings. I'm just going to get them all say out. Say them at all. Once. And like a pretty much in a couple notes range. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> that stuff was my jam in like mm. yeah, 10, 11, 12th grade. Oof. <laughs> so good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I can really see that. Right? <laughs> the formation of Bethy. <laughs> All right. Oh, I have the chapter. Okay. Oh, yeah, you do. 